quite a surprise for some of you, maybe a shock for others, but it is good to be here this morning with you, and I'm thankful for this opportunity to teach at Grace. We are very blessed in being at Grace to have a pastor who faithfully and rightly divides the word of truth, and I'm thankful that he has a break this week, and he has an opportunity to rest and relax with his family And so this morning, we are excited to be here, though, and we are eager to hear what the Lord has for us. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 25, we're going to be in a story this morning that comprises verses 1 through 39. I do want to take a moment while you are turning there, and I want to thank those of you who have prayed for my wife, Melissa, and our family during this time of her hip replacement. And we appreciate the gracious, loving, generous, and thoughtful care of both Melissa and me and our family during this time. And over the past several weeks, so many of you have provided meals. You've provided so much more texts that are sent, prayers, Uh, thoughtful notes, and just a number of ways that you've really stepped up for our family during this time of her recovery. And I've said this to a couple of people already, but we have never felt as loved as we have at Grace Community Church during this season as we have from you during this season. So I just want to say that thank you, and that's for me and Melissa and our family. We are very appreciative of all that you've done. So, some of you know this, I think most of you know this, but I work with Waterfront Rescue Mission, and I teach a class on anger management. And the reason that I teach this class is twofold. First of all, the issue of sinful anger, and I do make a distinction in that anger in and of itself is a God-given emotion that is not evil, it's not bad, it's something that God has given us for a specific purpose, but sinful anger is something that I have greatly struggled with in my life, and I continue to do so, although God has given me incredible victory in my life and continues to do so uh, through the years. And so that's one of the reasons that I teach this class, and the second reason that I teach this class is that it reminds me of my continual struggle and my need for Christ. And so that's very critical for me uh, to be reminded of. People, I have some friends that often like to joke with me a lot about the fact that I teach an anger management class, and some of them are still around, but (laughs) it is not a trigger for me that they make fun of me for teaching an anger management class at all, but I, I am completely fine with that. So the reason I'm bringing it up this morning is that the story that we're going to take a look at, the story of Abigail, Nabal, and David, really highlights some of the destructive capabilities of sinful anger. And the model in the story that we'll take a look at is actually Abigail. And so she is often not often looked at in Scripture, but we're going to look at her this morning and... Really, she demonstrates for all of us what it is like to be a peacemaker for God. 
And so she is really the reason that this story even exists. In fact, this story is really an aside from the main narrative of the text. The main narrative is about David, who is the anointed king of Israel, not officially declared, not officially in office yet, but the anointed king of David, who's really on the run for his life, along with his men from the sitting king, who is Saul. And so this is really an aside from that main narrative, but, but it certainly is an important story. And so we're going to look at, this, at that this morning. Romans 15.4 states, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So my goal today is to encourage you to endure through this scriptural example and to highlight some of the ways that Abigail serves as a figure or a type of Christ as a peacemaker. Perhaps that will give you hope in your own struggle against sin and in struggles with sinful people. So we're going to read the story. It is a lengthy one. I go ahead and tell you that. And then I'm going to discuss what is happening, highlight some of the main characters, make some observations about Abigail and some of the character traits that she has, and then conclude with some key takeaways and observations about the story. Before we read, though, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with our time together. Father, we are so thankful today for this opportunity to look into your word, and I pray that you would guide me and help me to be a channel of understanding, not an obstacle to it. We pray that, Father, you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and enable me to communicate in a way that will be a blessing, will be an encouragement to those who are here. I pray that you would use the scriptural model of Abigail, Father, as a way to point to Christ and that we would also see the struggles in the story as well, and that it would reveal to us some of the necessary steps that we must take in order to be more Christ-like and to exemplify Christ in our dealings in life. So, Father, we entrust this time to you. We pray that we would make the most of it, and we thank you for this. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin reading 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Maon. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep-shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, 
be favorable toward my young men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us all the time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with De David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed, and from avenging yourself with your own hands. As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a, a lasting dynasty for my master, because he fights the Lord's battles." Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, 
My master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things. And his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord, who has upheld my case or my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his head. Let's stop there. And all of God's people said, that's a great story, is it not? It's a wonderful story, and it certainly is worth reading in full. The story basically opens with the death of Samuel, who is one of the greatest prophets and leaders of the Old Testament. His death really signifies the end of an era. At the same time, David and his mighty men, as they're often referred to, have been on the run from Saul for quite some time. And the procurement of food supplies, not only for themselves, but also for their horses, has been very difficult to come by. And so during this time and place, it was very customary for tribes and clans to trade services for goods or for information. And so David's request of Nabal is not just customary, it is reasonable. He is not demanding, but he is simply requesting payment for past labor. Labor that would have consisted of him looking after Nabal's own shepherds. Two other aspects make David's request even more reasonable. The fact is Nabal was very wealthy. And then the second thing is that this is the time of season where there was annual feasting that occurred. And you would have already set aside a lot of resources for celebration. And so all of these things together make David's request very reasonable. So with all of that consideration, then enters Nabal. His name means fool, and so we get a pretty good preview of what he, what he is like. He is not someone, as you read the story, that you really like. You don't like at all. He is incorrigible. He is surly, which means rude. I think the ESV uses the term harsh. And so he is someone that is very mean in his dealings with people. Nabal shows us right out of the gate 
who he is. He is a jerk of royal proportions. Some of you laugh because you know someone like this. But especially grievous in this culture is the snub of inhospitality, which is what Nabal is really committing. And to add insult to injury, literally, he not only refuses the request, but he also insults David. He attacks where David comes from. He is the son of Jesse. Who would have thought a king would have come from the son of Jesse? And so he is throwing off on David's lineage. He is really cutting him down. He is really talking as if he is a scoundrel, a fugitive, a criminal on the run. And he says a lot of people break away from their masters. And so he's really not impressed with David at all. He's very, very cruel in his response to David's request. And so we really don't like Nabal, do we? And so as we go through the story, we know a lot about David, though, don't we? And so David, who is so, such a wonderful figure in Scripture, his response is really summed up by one sentence. He says, put on your swords, grab your swords, let's go. And I really like David for probably all the wrong reasons. Because he has these passions that are just so unbounded. There's a reason why a lot of people still like mafia movies. I mean, there is something about, you know what, just grab the sword. This guy's been rude. We're going to take him out. I mean, there's no discussion. There's no bringing people in. Let's talk about this. Let's, are, we, you know, are we really inordinate in our reaction? He just goes to the swords immediately, and he is going to take action as only David can. So think about how imbalanced his reaction is for just a moment. Nabal, who is clearly rude, who is clearly a jerk, not someone we like, has insulted David and refused his request. David, on the other hand, says, grab the swords, we're going to murder this guy. And we're going to take out all of the males and possibly other people. We really don't know. But basically, he gets 400 warriors with their swords, and he is going to take several hundred people out because one guy insulted him. Pretty balanced, right? And so that's what we love about David is he has these passions, for better or for worse, they are just unbounded so many times. And this is another example of how this plays out. And so, the punishment certainly doesn't seem to fit the crime. And yet, in our own relationships often, we usually respond like this, don't we? We talk about an eye for an eye, but it's typically not an eye for an eye. It's usually more like an eye for a body. It's never the same. It's always, you said this, I'm going to say this. I mean, this scorched earth strategy really doesn't play well in our relationships with others. We won't, you're going to insult me, I'm going to take everybody out. And so it doesn't really make sense. Now, obviously, if you're here this morning, you're probably not wanted by the FBI for murdering people, but some of us have probably murdered people in our heads because of things that they've said that really were not that big of deals. 
people have done stuff and we just write them off. They'll never, because they said this one thing, I'm going to put them in this box and I can never have any dealings with them again. And that's exactly how David responds. This is exactly how he responds to Nabal's insult. We also see Nabal's servant. There's one servant that breaks away from the group and has the wit or the wisdom to go to Abigail and to basically say, we are in a bad place. We are about to get run over by David and his warriors if there's anything you can do. Now, we could, all, we could look at him and say, he's a peacemaker too, but I think he's more motivated by the fact that he's going to die if he doesn't do something. And so he goes to Abigail and he is pleading with her, is there anything that you can do in this situation to mitigate the disaster that is coming upon us? And then enter Abigail. We see this great person who immediately is identified as an intelligent and beautiful woman. And so the fact that Nabal's servant is even able to go to Abigail means, first of all, she's very approachable. And so secondly, she is someone that is deeply respected for her decision-making. She is someone that can be well looked at because of the things that she has to deal with with Nabal. And so this person goes to Abigail, and Abigail immediately begins to take action. The Bible actually uses the phrase, Abigail lost no time. She sends out this great convoy, and we know that this urgency of the matter is very important because David even later on references it, and he says, if you had not hurried, you would have missed out on the opportunity to prevent me from doing what I wanted to do, which is to harm many people. And so she lost no time. She sends out this great convoy of supplies to hopefully halt or slow David's posse from their intended slaughter until she can get there and she can intercede. And so she gets there, she's riding this donkey, she sends out the supplies, and she gets there right in time as David and his men are coming around the mountain ravine. And she makes this great speech, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And she throws herself down in front of David, she bows before David, and she humbles herself and she pleads for the life of her husband, and she pleads for the life of of her household. And then David, of course, relents. He does not decide to go and to kill Nabal and his men as he had. And so I want to point out several things this morning right out of the gate that I think are worthy of us emulating in the life of Abigail as she shows Christ-like traits of peacemaking. First of all, we see the wisdom of her actions. In her peacemaking, we see the wisdom of her actions. We see this in verses 18 through 24. She sends out this array of supplies, which were by no mistake the same. This is really the answer 
to the request that David was asking. He was asking for Nabal to do this. Nabal, of course, refused, but Abigail is actually coming back and she's answering David's request in the affirmative. Here are the supplies. And so she's sending this out in front of the caravan. And she does this quickly. She tells her servants to go ahead. And she does this in a way that you would customarily approach a king. You send out a gift as a way of respect. You send out a gift to kind of pave the way and to make sure that things are okay. She does not tell her husband. I know some of you may have a problem with that because as you read this, you think, I would have to tell my spouse about this. But is your spouse a fool? Do not look at your spouse right now. Please. This could get really awkward. Do not answer that. Do not look around. Everybody keep looking at me. If you were married to Nabal, you can understand why she did not say anything immediately to Nabal. And so she's very wise in this. She is very savvy in knowing what to do and how to handle this situation. And we obviously see Jesus in this, how he is so full of wisdom in so many different difficult situations that he found himself in. And so as Abigail is, she is in a difficult situation. She chooses not to do something which we would naturally think she should do. And she, and she puts herself in harm and danger, but she does it in a way that is very wise. Sending out the supplies beforehand, and then she follows behind. She's very wise in the way that she handles things. And I think a lot of times when we find ourselves around difficult people or we find ourselves in situations which would make us want to react in anger, we could do a whole lot better by just being wise, by thinking through the situation and thinking of how we can mitigate disaster rather than to stir it up. And Abigail is really skilled in this way. The second thing that we see is not only her wisdom of actions, but we see the humility of her spirit. The choice terms that she uses here are your servant. She says this to David. She indicates that I am your servant, that I am here to serve you, that I understand that I am in submission to you, and that I am submitting myself, I am putting myself down of not in a of loss of dignity sort of way, but I am basically putting my life in your hands. You are the master. She says, my master, and she says, my Lord, and she continues to say this all throughout her address to David. The humility that we see in her is really amazing. Now, when we hear that, a lot of times we think, that she's submitting herself to David as a loss of power, that she's powerless. But the opposite is actually true. She actually, of everybody in the story, she actually moves the story more than anybody else. She influences the outcome more than anyone else. In fact, if you look at it from a kingdom perspective, Abigail is actually doing something that is countercultural. 
She is submitting herself, and yet by doing that, she is the most powerful person in the narrative. And we think sometimes that if we are in control, or if we press ourselves forward, we think that we will lose control. And yet, Jesus, who had all power and had all authority, He willingly submits Himself to others. He becomes a servant to all. Is He out of control? Does He not have any power? We know that that's not true. Everything that happened, it happened because He submitted Himself to the will of the Father. And so Abigail knows that in order to do this, she is ultimately submitting herself to God, but she is also submitting herself to David, who is right in front of her. This is an amazing countercultural turning on its head of what we might actually expect. She understood the situation. She understood what, we sh- what she was up against, and it made a difference. We not only see the wisdom of her actions and the humility of her spirit, we also see the love of her advocacy. She says right out of the gate to David, let the blame be on me. Let the guilt be on me. She is advocating for her husband, who we've clearly established as a foolish person, And she wants to take the blame for her husband. He does not deserve her to do this. He does not, uh, there's nothing that Nabal has done to really merit anything that Abigail is doing. And yet, just like Christ, she says, take me. Let me be the one to take the burden of this. Do not carry this vengeance out on my household or on my husband. She is standing in the gap. She pleads in verse 28, she even says, please forgive your servant's offense. Speaking of her husband, her love is seeking to cover over a multitude of sins here. And so again, we see Jesus in this. We see that Jesus, who takes our struggle with anger, who takes our blame, who takes our foolishness, and he steps in the way and he says, I will take the blame. Let the sins and the iniquities and the trespasses that you have committed, let them be placed on me, Jesus said. So we see in Abigail again, we see that she is willing to advocate and her love for God moves her to do this and her love for her husband and her household. And finally, in aspects of characteristics of peacemaking, we see her faith, the faith of her words. The faith of her words. We see this all throughout the passage, but again and again, I want to point out a few things here. We see in verse 26, it says, Now since the Lord has kept you, my master from bloodshed, and from avenging yourself with your own hands. As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, may your enemies be like Nabal. Verse 28, she says, The Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. In verse 29, she says, Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, 
The life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has done this, verse 30, for my master, every good thing he promised concerning him, concerning David, and has appointed him leader over Israel. And then verse 31 says, And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. Other than the Psalms, I cannot remember reading a greater rendition and acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, specifically outlined in the life of David. David is a hero right now in Israel for many. He is revered as the one who slayed, who slayed Goliath. And she references that, doesn't she? She mentions of, from the sling. She mentions this story. And what she's doing is she is saying, you didn't get that victory. God is the one who has given you these great successes. In fact, He has promised many things about your family. He has even promised to establish your family as a dynasty in the future. And so she goes on and on, and she is affirming that as great as David is, David is only great because he is allowing the Lord to guide his steps. He is allowing God to be the one that is truly making the difference in David's life. And so we see this over and over again. And by saying this, she is admonishing David to remember his own story. We often forget, don't we? We, we read the stories. Can you imagine reading your own press clippings about how you beat the giant? And David, I'm sure, had gotten caught up in some of this with even the ones who were saying, you know, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And Abigail is very humbly and very skillfully reminding David, you're kind of a big deal only because God has made you a big deal. And when you start to step away from the reality of who God is and what He has in store for you, you are really in a dangerous place. And she is reminding David not to take matters into his own hand, but to continue to only fight the battles that God wants him to fight, and through God's strength, not through the fleshly energy of sinful anger. David listens to Abigail, which I think is wonderful. We've all had people that stepped in the way of things that we were about to do that were so destructive. And we look back on those times in our lives and we think, oh my Lord, I was about to go off the cliff. And so David sees Abigail as an angel sent from God. Angel meaning messenger. He literally sees her as a messenger that is sent from God that that. She is someone who has basically stepped in front of the sword for her husband. But she's not only rescuing her family. She's not only rescuing her household. She is also rescuing David from the destruction of his own sin. And this is what we must not miss in the story. That the greatest tragedy that has been averted is not just the killing of the family, which would be awful. 
but it would be the actual killing by David. It would take him into a dark place and it would take David into a mindset that is unimaginable. So, so often we forget this in the struggle against sin that God steps in the way of keeping us from doing harm to people or keeping us from doing harm to ourselves is also the reason that he does this. I want to wrap up the message today by just giving you four key takeaways from this passage that I think has to do in general with our making peace that hopefully we will get from this. First of all, sometimes your most positive actions or gestures will have no good effect on some people's negative outbursts. Let me say that again. Sometimes your most positive actions or gestures will have no good effect on some people's negative outbursts. David was someone who was trying to do the right thing. He was trying to handle himself with the right protocol. He was trying to be very delicate. He was trying to protect Nabal's men. He was trying to do everything that he could, and yet Nabal turns out to be a royal jerk. And sometimes, guess what? That happens. I had a guy in our recovery program who told me this a few weeks ago. He said, I don't do real well with rude people. <laughs> and I kind of looked at him like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, get in a spaceship and go live on Mars. <laughs> like, I don't really know what the option is. Like, There are rude people everywhere. I know there's no rude people in here, and I know that no one in here has ever been rude, so this is really for that other church down the road somewhere. But I don't know. It just so happens that we're all rude sometimes, and sometimes we're rude a lot of times. And that's just where it is. And we've got to get away from these geographical stereotypes where we say, oh, you know, if you're from New York, you're... No, some of the nicest people I've ever met are from New York. And then we say, people from the South, they're so polite and nice. And I'm like, I am from the South. (laughs) And I can assure you that we are not nice and polite. And I have family members that you need to meet. (laughs) They're not here, but... I will tell you that we just, and I don't mean my wife, by the way. (laughs) I keep having to qualify everything I'm saying here. But it's just the world we live in, right? And sometimes you can do everything in the right way and still have people react in a terrible, terrible way. The scripture, Romans 12, 18, that we love to quote because the first part of it says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. And we love to stress the part, if it's possible, because we assume that most of the time it's not. But I think the stress is really more on as far as it depends on you. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you live peaceably with everyone. And I think that's the reality of what we need to learn in this difficult situations that we find ourselves in. Let me give you the second one. People who go to great lengths to mitigate or to reduce potential 
disasters are well looked upon in the Scriptures. People who go to great lengths to reduce or mitigate potential disasters are well looked upon in the Scriptures. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons and daughters of God. That really is an amazing text. We know the story of Esther, right? Queen Esther, who did so much to avert a disaster. Really, genocide is what she really averted with her own people. And so we know that she very skillfully and peacefully navigates a difficult situation in Scripture. And I don't think it's any mistake that oftentimes it's women who are these peacemakers. And so we see this again and again that in Scripture, peacemakers are held up as models of what godly people should be. Let me give you the third one. As terrible as some people are, reacting with sinful anger typically outweighs the original infraction. Let me say that again. As terrible as some people are, reacting with sinful anger typically outweighs the original infraction. James 1, 19 and 20 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. In other words, our sinful anger only exacerbates an already bad situation. That is, it only makes it worse. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So we know that anger, sinful anger that is not channeled in the right way, it only leads to worse things, to worse outcomes. And so as bad as things may be, we really should check our anger. Let me give you the fourth and final thing, and it's so important that we don't miss this final one. Our choice to manage our anger is a step of faith that entrusts the situation to God. Our choice to manage our anger is a step of faith that entrusts the situation to God. When you allow your anger to control the situation, you are usurping God's authority and you are acting in His place as God. Seeking to retaliate or carry out vengeance will not only make matters worse, but it will render irreparable harm to the relationship. We must understand this. We must know that when we react in sinful anger, we are basically saying, I am acting in the place of God, and I am going to carry out vengeance, and I am going to take care of this myself. That's exactly what David was doing, was it not? He was fighting a battle for the Lord that the Lord did not need him to fight. And Abigail makes that point. This is not a battle, David, that you need to fight. God certainly, in this situation, we see He did deal with Nabal. 
Now, one of the things that we have to be careful of in stories, we have descriptions and we have prescriptions. This is a description of what happened. This does not mean that everything that happened in this story is going to happen for all time. It doesn't mean that everybody who ticks you off, God's going to take out if you just leave it to Him. Yeah, God will get you. What is that? No, that's not. I think you're missing the point. That's not. Now, David sees this clearly as the hand of God, but I don't think that we could speak as David did. I think we have to be very careful for that. Because a lot of times, a lot of the stuff that we deal with is just not that significant. A lot of difficulties, a lot of difficult people that we run across, and our choice to manage our anger, we are basically putting the situation in God's hand. So my conclusion this morning is that when we see interactions with people as opportunities for God to work versus obstacles to what we want, we will really begin to live as Christ designed us to live. We must not see people as they're just in my way. So I need to move them along. And whatever that means, I'll just do this and won't have anything else to do with them. People are not obstacles. The interactions that we have, even with difficult people, are not obstacles, but they are opportunities for God to work, either on them or on us or on both. But in any case, let God be God. Don't take matters into your own hands. You are not God. And aren't we thankful for that? Abigail serves to us today as a Christ-like figure of someone who exemplifies what it is like to stand in the gap and make peace, not war. Saving hundreds of lives as well as David from carrying out a great sin. And we see this, that God will deal with things in His own way. And we can trust Him to do just that, but we have to give Him the opportunity to work. So today, where are you with your anger? Are you a peacemaker? Are you someone that God is asking to deal with things in a different way? Please don't come up to me today and tell me that you don't struggle with anger. Everybody in here, if they're a human being, has an emotion called anger. It may play out differently than David's, but everybody has anger in here. If you don't have anger, you're probably not a human being, (laughs) which I would assume we all are. So please don't tell me that you don't have any anger in your heart today, or it will make me angry. I want to close our time today from reading from a passage that I referenced earlier in Romans. And let's stand. And this is going to be our, our benediction for today. Romans 15, 5, it says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said...
Have a great day. Have a great week. Thank you.